We are still concerned with the seven stations of consciousness and the two bases. Now we'll find out why they're called two bases in a minute. We got as far as the sixth station for consciousness, which was the infinity of consciousness, the sixth jhana, and uh, we already discussed that. So then we're coming to the next one. There are beings who, having completely surmounted the base of the infinity of consciousness, contemplating there is nothing, arrive at the base of nothingness. This is the seventh station for consciousness. Uh, the word contemplating in there is also uh, significant, and there's another aspect which is significant that happens between the jhanas. As one gets to know them, there is a deliberate moving from one to the next. The deliberate moving means that we don't wait till something happens. What we recognize is that the one we're at is still somewhat gross, and we can go to a finer one. So, particularly noticeable, of course, in the fine material ones, when we have first physical sensation and know that obviously we're not meditating for that. So we can deliberately, after having been in that state of the first jhana, deliberately realize that this is not necessary to keep on, that we can move to something finer, which is emotional, in that case joy. Now here, with the immaterial ones, we become aware of the space which, in the, in the fifth one, which is actually the fifth aspect of materiality, the fifth element. So as we become aware of that, we realize that we are using consciousness in order to be aware of that and move our attention from this infinity of space to that infinite consciousness which is watching that infinity, infinity of space for the simple reason that only infinity of consciousness can be aware of infinity of space. And we know that because space is still material, we can move to the next one, consciousness, which is mental. The material base is always the grosser, the mental base is the finer. Now then, the deliberate understanding, and this is mentioned here as contemplating, but it's not a real contemplation, it is an intuitive understanding, that neither in the infinity of space nor in the infinity of consciousness is there anything to be found. There is nothing that can be pointed to there is nothing that can be hung on to, that can be considered to be me. There is nothing that gives any footing. It is nothing. 
Now that is explained in two different, well, in different ways, most often in two different ones. In one way of experiencing that is that there is actually a spacious and infinite feeling, but within that spacious infinite feeling, there is nothing that can be pointed to. And the other way of experiencing that is also movement, that there's movement, because everything is movement in the universe. But within that movement, there's nothing that's coming together and staying together. Our scientists have said this many, many years ago, that there's not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. Everything are particles that come together and fall apart, including us. Except we can't see that. If we could see it, that we are particles coming together and falling apart, would be so much easier to have the feeling as if there wasn't anybody there. But since we can't see it, it appears to be something that is out of our reach. But again, I must um, explain and um, really emphasize that what we see with our physical eye is a minute aspect of the whole of existence and the universe. The physical eye can just see as far as the horizon, and it cannot even look around corners. But not only that, it, what it does all the time, unfortunately, is it relates its experience to the mind, has to, has no way out of that one, and the mind makes stories. Interesting stories, but all of them wrong. Not a single correct one. So again, when we see this solid person sitting there, and we look at it and say, well, that's me. Obviously, it must be, because it's not you, so it's got to be me. We do not pay attention to the reality, the underlying reality, of the constant movement. And in that base of nothingness, that is very often experienced. Uh, not always, it's not um, a necessity to experience it, but it is often explained there. And then, this is the great advantage and the great benefit of the jhanas, the personal experience. If we don't experience it, that we are nothing but particles coming together and falling apart, we may be willing to believe it. We have a certain willingness to believe it. But what good does that do? It's very nice. So I'm particles coming together and falling apart. So what difference does that make? It may be an, an interesting conversation point when you get home to tell your friends what did you learn? Oh, I learned I'm particles coming together and falling apart. And then they'll, they'll either say, oh, this is you know, nonsense, or they'll say something else. They learned it too. It doesn't make any difference. But when the personal experience happens and the mind is quiet enough not to tell stories, 
when it's finally decided to stop telling stories. And it has to at that time. Otherwise, it can't be in the seventh jhana. It's got to stop telling stories. So it only experiences. Then it knows, because there's no doubt it has experienced it. So this is the seventh station, it's called here, the seventh station for consciousness. And again, as all the immaterial ones um, have been called, just basis for consciousness. They haven't been given any particular names in the realms of um, the different realms of existence. They've just been called basis. And because there aren't any so-called beings there that we could say they are beings, but there's consciousness. So again, we have the same connection that we talked about yesterday. We can, if we have that ability to have the seventh uh, jhana that brings us to that base of consciousness where we can be reborn in that state. Um, maybe I should add again that the Buddha does not deem this advisable, but not because it's a bad state to be born in. Rebirth in itself means impermanence. So it's a whole pathway leads to the uh, letting go of that reappearance. But anyway, that is where we can reappear. Now, from the seventh jhana, the next one is not called a station for consciousness, the eighth jhana, because consciousness isn't there. At least it isn't there in the way we usually know it. So it's called, the Buddha says, the base of non-perception beings, and second, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. These are the two bases. So he's actually doing something which he doesn't ever do in other suttas. He uh, doesn't call it the eighth jhana, which he usually does, but he calls it the base, the base of non-perception beings and or, and secondly, the base of neither perception or non-perception. Now the eighth jhana is the base of neither perception or non-perception. And the reason he's not calling it this eighth station for consciousness because it isn't a, um, a meditation state where our consciousness is the way we usually know it. It, The perceiving, which is the labeling, is at least halved. It's um, 50% less than usual. And um, also the feeling is halved. So it is not that we're unconscious. One would hope not. But... It's also not, and it's not sleep, it's not trance, it's not unconsciousness, but it isn't the same sort of consciousness that we usually have. It isn't sharp, it isn't one-pointed, it doesn't project itself. Usually our consciousness projects. Now we may be aware of just consciousness, so it projects for us consciousness as a projection going on, it's sometimes I have heard it compared or read it compared to a movie screen on which there is a movie being shown. Now the movie of nothingness is still a movie of nothingness. Now on the, in the eighth jhana, the movie hasn't completely stopped. 
it's still moving. But the projection, which usually is being done by this movie camera of our consciousness, has not actually focused on that movie screen. So while there is still not completeness, it still is much less um, impingement than usual. So it is the jhana where the mind has the greatest rest. Now we must never be confused about sleep or rest. Sleep is sloth and torpor. We can't do a thing. We don't even make karma, which in many cases is very uh, fortunate because of some of these dreadful dreams people have. But, and we don't make any karma with them because karma has to have intention behind it. But rest is something entirely different. Rest is a mind that has finally given up and given in. And if you have any doubts how to get into jhana, you've got to give up and give in. Completely. Utterly. Totally. There's nobody there anyway with all those views and opinions. And those views and opinions, believe me, you can pick them up right away after the meditation again. And you carry them, carry them around with you and be bothered by them to your heart's content. But in meditation, you've got to give them up. Without giving those up, there is no meditation. So we have to give up and give in. Now here we've got to give up and give in totally. But through the pathway of through the, from the first to the seventh, that is already established. So anyone who can go from the fourth to the fifth will have no problem going to the eighth. There's often a problem going from third to fourth because the first three are relatively very easy and then the next problem arises between fourth and fifth because the first, the fine material ones are on a different plane. They're on a different plane which will come out in a moment um, and the immaterial ones have a a much more elevated consciousness with them. But anyone who, anyone who can do five and six and will go to eight, because at that time one has given up and given in. And if we don't give up and give in and not uh, resentfully or in any way with um, a kind of proviso behind it, I'll do it for a little time, but I won't do it forever, or with any kind of thought about that it's me doing this. It'd be impossible to do it. One of the things that I might um, suggest to you if you want your meditation to improve is forget that you're meditating. Just do it. It's not me meditating. If it was me meditating, then all these me's in the world they could all do it, and they don't. It's getting rid of that idea and deliberately getting rid, not waiting for something to happen that now I'm getting rid of it because something has snapped in my mind, nothing like that. Deliberately getting rid of it, using your intelligent mind in the most profitable way. If we don't use our intelligent mind in a profitable way, it will lose intelligence. 
The Buddha said, we either go forward or backward. We never stand still. And the less we use our mind intelligently, the more it will go backward. So it's nothing other than intelligently deciding, I'm not, it's not me meditating. I'm, there's just the doing of it. Just like there's no knower, there's only knowing. Now that can be a, just a determination. All of that will be helpful to use it. Any one of them or all of them together. But you've got to remember to do that. Difficult, isn't it? So now we have the eighth one. And again, it's called the, um, the a base that we can be reborn in. And here it is even mentioned in this sentence of the Buddha. These things that I'm reading to you are the words of the Buddha in this particular discourse, um, which I think, personally, is enormously important and helpful to know that the Buddha said these things and that they are the pathway and that he designated it and um, gave us the instructions and the guidelines. This is the way it is, he said. Now just go ahead and do it. And I think this is of the utmost importance because we have it from the greatest spiritual genius that we can relate to at this time still. Obviously, we need the explanation, the exposition. We need the interpretation. There's no doubt about that. Most people do. Some people don't, but most people do. But first of all, we have to know this is what the Buddha really said. So here we are, the base of non-perception beings. This is actually the base of rebirth for people from the eighth jhana. It's a base of non-perception beings, and the Buddha said it's totally undesirable. Because in that base, when one isn't perceiving, one can't practice. And since one is, if one is in eighth jhana, one is nowhere near liberated yet. One isn't enlightened. So being reborn on that base is not enlightenment. One's going to come fall off it again, and so it's not a desirable state to be reborn in. And when the Buddha was on his deathbed, he went from first jhana to eighth, back down to first, and died between fourth and fifth. And Mahamogalana, who was his um, left-hand disciple, well, had great psychic abilities and told that to the other monks. And so we have it written down in the sutta that this is what happened. So that is the base of non-perception beings means this is, there is such a consciousness which is within the realm of the uh, existence for beings and the um, its jhana is that is the uh, entrance. It's of course a base when you don't perceive, you don't have dukkha. So it's a bit like um, being out of it. And as you're out of it, I mean the, that rebirth state, of course you can't practice. Now as far as the its jhana itself is concerned, the consciousness is still vital enough to know afterwards that that was its jhana. And that was extremely restful and therefore energizing for the mind. Now, we come to a very interesting aspect of this whole business, the seven stations for consciousness, and what the Buddha says, and I'll explain it then. There in Ananda, if one understands the first station for consciousness, that of beings who are diverse in body and diverse in perception, and if one understands its origin, its passing away, 
its satisfaction, its unsatisfactoriness, and the escape from it, is it proper for one to seek enjoyment in it? Certainly not, Venerable Sir. If one understands the remaining stations for consciousness, and then he lists them all, and if one understands its origin, passing away, satisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, and the escape from it, is it proper for one to seek enjoyment in it? Certainly not, Venerable Sir. Ananda, when a bhikkhu, a bhikkhu is a monk, when a bhikkhu, having understood as they really are, the origin, passing away, satisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, and escape, in regard to these seven stations for consciousness and two bases, is liberated through non-clinging, then he is called a bhikkhu liberated by wisdom. So here there's a very interesting aspect of this, namely that the Buddha said, if one understands, now this is the first station, he talks about the world, if one understands the consciousness of the world, and that that is arising, origin, depend arising, how does it come about to be a human being, the passing away, the satisfaction and the unsatisfactoriness of it, and the escape from it, should one seek enjoyment in it. And the, and the Nananda said one shouldn't. Now, the origin and passing away is depend arising, birth, decay, disease, and death. I mean, that's quite obvious, isn't it? And the other thing is the satisfaction, unsatisfaction, and escape. These are the Four Noble Truths. The unsatisfactoriness is Dukkha. And the, uh, the satisfaction as the Noble Eightfold Path, the pathway to the uh, cessation, the escape. So if one understands all that, will one seek enjoyment? And Ananda says no. But then the Buddha goes on to say the same about all the jhanas. And that is to mean that here he's talking about a person who understands the jhanas but can't do them. The commentary says that those people who become liberated through no cl non-clinging would be able to do the first four because it is necessary to have at least that much concentration. But the first four are not considered to be the basis for complete insight and they are not considered to be the basis for complete liberation. So that person who has gets liberated through non-clinging does it more through insight than through the jhanas. The four, first four jhanas are sort of like a uh, support system for that. But it's a non-clinging to any of them and the non-clinging to this being that we are. Now the non-clinging always refers primarily to the me person. The non-clinging is that which can liberate a person. The clinging is that which keeps us in the round of samsara. And again, if we don't want to, if we don't care one little bit what happens to us after death, we do care what happens to us tomorrow. And our clinging is that what keeps us in the round of like and dislike, happy and unhappy, loss and gain, fame and ill-fame, and it is that which brings the mind constantly up and down, forward, backward, sideways, and any which way. It's our clinging to 
the preconceived notion who this person is and what this person should have. Now, if we really want to get out of that, which is the round of samsara, getting born in the morning, dying at night, and having all these difficulties all during the day through the sense contacts, the feelings, the cravings, the clingings, and the becoming, which is the dependent arising, if we really want to get out of that, we have to have the insight of non-clinging. Now, never does the Buddha say that that can be actually achieved without the meditative path, although the commentaries do. The commentaries which were written later, and some of them are not canonical, some are canonical meaning that they weren't taken into the whole body of the teaching, some were and some were not. The most elaborate ones are not part of the body of the teaching. Say that it is possible to gain this insight of non-clinging without having the concentration of the jhanas. The Buddha doesn't say that. The commentaries say that. And another commentarial statement says, but anyone who does get liberated that way will at least be able to do the first four jhanas. So take your pick. (laughs) I, I, I don't know where to pick. But what is definite and without a shadow of a doubt is how the Buddha himself did it. He did it through the eight jhanas. And when he got to the eighth jhana, he realized that's all very nice, but that's also impermanent. There's something more to be done. And not only that, but I have now mentioned many a time the insights which come from the jhanas, which are personal experiences. Without that, and without the support system of that personal experience, how do we experience the fact that there's nobody there? How? It's, I would say, and this is my personal statement, it's impossible. But if we do go in the jhana, that was a personal statement, was not the Buddha's statement. The Buddha neither said that, you, that it is possible nor that it's impossible. He just gave the pathway. He said, this is the way to do it, now do it. With the personal experience of the jhana, there is no shadow of a doubt. And as there is no shadow of a doubt, the mind directs itself towards letting go of the clinging to this person. Because the jhanas are peaceful, they are joyful, they are um, elevated, they have all the ingredients of happiness in them. So it is quite clear that that's only possible when the I and me and mine has been laid aside for a while. So the mind who does that knows This is a way to have peace and happiness, laying the I, me, and mine aside. And then, of course, comes that very deliberate intention of the mind. Now I have to see how to do that. Now, through dependent arising, we have have a complete pathway. And the Four Noble Truths, which is what is mentioned here, as that which the one who becomes liberated knows, the Four Noble Truths are just a short statement of dependent arising. And as soon as I finish with what is said in this sutta, I will explain the Four Noble Truths in detail. We will go through them because they belong together to dependent arising. They are the Buddha's enlightenment statement, the Four Noble Truths. And dependent arising was part of that enlightenment statement. He mentioned it, but he only later 
elaborated on it. This is the most elaborate statement of the pender rising that he has ever made. And again, I'd like to emphasize that it is very important to look at dependent arising in oneself during the day and see it for <clears throat> the fact that it is and for the experience it can bring. As soon as we see dependent arising in ourselves, we shake this stronghold that our view on me has on us. The stronghold, which is like a stranglehold. It has that on us. And as long as we have that, there won't be any happiness. There will be moments of it, but it's not the kind of happiness which is dependable. It's not independent. So, dependarizing during the day, look at it, see it. How did this feeling come about? What was the sense contact that brought it about? What am, how am I reacting to this feeling? Am I reacting with dislike? Am I reacting with wanting to have? What am I doing? And the main thing is one's own reactions, because they are one's own karma. Nobody else is involved, just oneself. There is nobody else involved. So if we get liberated or not, at least we can take a stab at making good karma with our reactions. So he's talking here about what is called a Panya Vimuti. Now, Panya is wisdom, Vimuti is liberation. So the Buddha is talking about a person who is liberated by wisdom. He says, if liberated through non-clinging, then he is called a bhikkhu liberated by wisdom. These are technical terms, liberated by wisdom. And as I said before, you can take your pick. It is possible to, the commentaries say, that it's just done through that investigation, but then they also say one has to have the third jhana. Now, the investigation is part of wisdom. And I have many times mentioned it, all the things that should be investigated. And I think I will make a resume of them and uh, repeat them, but not at this moment, after I finish with this tomorrow. Investigation and contemplation are the same thing. The mind investigates, and the mind sees, and it needs to see beyond that which it always sees. If it only sees that which it always sees, uh, only sees that which it has always seen already, that's not insight. That's just getting back on the old track again. In order to find wisdom, the investigation has to bring with it something new something different. And when it does that, the mind usually says, oh, haha, great. And then one has to anchor that in the mind so that one can actually use it. It doesn't get lost, but one's got to anchor it so one can use it. And this is how, slowly but surely, the mind becomes less defiled. It has less hate and greed in it. It has less defilement. It purifies, it becomes more and more open, and it becomes less and less a personal property. We all think we've got our personal property in the mind. And we have all sorts of, you know, sort of um, um, property safeguards. 
we allow, we allow the mind to go this far and then no further and that type of thing. It's not personal property at all. Well, we can find out about that. So that's one part. That's a function of wisdom. The attainment then is one part or the whole part of absolute truth. Investigation can bring with it some particle of truth or many particles of truth. And then that brings less delusion. So this investigation, contemplation, needs to bring some new aspect. And the new aspect has to be based on anicca, dukkha, anatta. Either one, never need to use the words, impermanence, dukkha, substancelessness. Nobody there. Either one of the three. But you don't have to use those words. They don't have to be even part of your uh, description. But that has to be the base because that brings less delusion. So that's one way of wisdom. The Buddha also mentions that there are two kinds of wisdom, mundane and supermundane. Mundane is a wisdom which makes it easier to live in the world, how to handle things in the world. Now, there are people who find that very difficult. They don't have, we sometimes say they don't have any common sense. They don't, have, don't know how to deal with the world. They are um, they're not necessarily otherworldly at all. They just don't have enough wisdom to deal with the things of everyday life. The reason for that is usually that they haven't tried hard enough. It's always the case if one hasn't tried hard enough. And that kind of wisdom, of course, it's not so difficult to come by. I mean, they give lots of courses on that, you know, how to be a good manager and how to uh, have a decent family life and all that. So one can come by that wisdom. But then there's super mundane wisdom, and that's the one we are concerned with right now. We are only concerned with super mundane wisdom. I mean, we're really not concerned with how to become a good manager. If we really want to know that, we'll do that some other time. But this is about super mundane wisdom. And that, of course, is, again, also has three parts to it, just like the ordinary kind. We think. So I, I want you to be sure... I want to be sure that you don't think, don't think, that thinking is not all right. Thinking is not all right when you want to get into the jhanas, into calm and serenity meditation. Obviously, thinking is not all right. It's a no-no. But if you want to investigate, if you want to contemplate, if you want to find aspects of truth, obviously one has to think, but not discursively not from one thing to the next, the next, but one-pointedly. This is the whole difference. One thing only. One-pointed investigation. I want to find out what this dependent arising is in me. How did I come to be in this life? What's happening to me in this life? All right, you just go through dependent arising. That's all. You don't get off on a tangent and think about your mother and your father and your sister and your brother and how they're all not doing so well because they're not meditating and you're doing better. Nothing like it. It's got no bearing on this or how they didn't treat you right when you were little and all the rest of it. Dependent arising inside of yourself. One-pointedness. That's the difference between an investigation and discursive thinking. 
Now, an investigation is actually a good word, isn't it? It does tell us something. It tells maybe more than contemplation because it means that we really want to unravel something. And this is what this is all about. We want to unravel this mystery. Why are human beings the way they are? And why do they come for a short time and then disappear? And what is this me that's having problems? This is an unraveling. So investigation is a very good word for that. I, I think it's, it tells a better story. That's the first step, thought, investigation. Next one is study, which means this, exactly this. What did the Buddha say? Where is the answer to the riddle? How did he solve it? And how did he tell us to solve it? Study. Find out. And then, included with that, and as a uh, next, uh, oh, yes, as a support system, the meditation. The Buddha always talked about those three steps. Always the, the studying, the meditation, and the investigation. These three always belong together. And if you can relate to that, you will know that I've been trying to tell you that from the first day we were here. Always those three. And there's another interesting aspect about wisdom which the Buddha uses to explain it. Namely, that it has a fourfold system. His way of description is usually in that manner that he analyzes and puts things into threes and fours and fives and sixes. Helps us to remember them too. And he says, meaning, analysis, interpretation, and argument. Now, meaning. That is that we actually look at ourselves so objectively that we do not get caught in any judgment or description, but just try to find the meaning of it. Which is, for instance, again and again the same thing. Feeling arises. How did it come? What is my reaction? Not of course I have to react like that, or it's me reacting. But what is it? What's the meaning of it all? What does it really mean? Now again the Buddha says the meaning is always dependent arising, but it need not be that kind of an answer. We can have a look and, and look at the meaning of it and saying the meaning of this reaction is hate. And who's got the hate? Well, obviously this person who's got the reaction. Now that is an investigation, or the meaning is greed, or whatever, or the meaning is loving-kindness. So this is an investigation, again, into ourselves and the meaning. It has to be totally objective, as if we are using ourselves as a laboratory item. And we are sort of like the uh, laboratory worker, and uh, we're using this whole conglomeration of uh, mind and body as the uh, laboratory and all the things that are coming up are all these uh, um, chemicals that are bubbling. And then so we look, what is this chemical made of? What's its ingredients? What is it made of? Not that it's made of uh, uh, the ingredients of a chemical necessarily, but this is made of hate. This is made of out of greed. So we, it is a very interesting thing to do, but unfortunately, because we are uh, me-centered, it doesn't always work. 
<laughs> because we have all sorts of other explanations, but it's very interesting to do. So that's the first thing. And then comes the analysis, which I've actually already um, uh, sort of mentioned, because after we've seen what the thing that, what the meaning of it is, then we analyze it and see that it is consisting of our reaction. And the reaction is based on the idea that there's somebody there who should be treated in a certain way or should get certain things or should um, achieve certain things. So again, when we analyze, we will see that the me is standing in the middle of that analysis. And then after that, we have the interpretation. And if we have listened properly um, and diligently or made sufficient notes, then we will find that we can interpret what is happening there with total conviction, not just because it was mentioned. But for that, one has to have either a splendid memory, long practice, or good notes. <laughs> and if one hasn't got either one of the three, next time around. <laughs> so the interpretation has to be with total conviction, not just because it was said so. It has to be one's own agreement through the analysis of the meaning. And that's very, very interesting to do because when one then interprets in the way the Buddha said, the mind feels relieved. It says, gee, that's interesting. That's what the Buddha said. It's really like that. Look at that. He really knew. And then the whole thing makes a, makes a total um, feeling in the heart of being connected to the greatest spiritual adventure that ever was. Because the mind has seen, and it has, was told before, and but then has seen. That's why the Buddha never wanted anyone to believe him. And I don't want you to believe me at all, but I want you to investigate. And that's what the Buddha wanted. He wanted people to find out for themselves. For themselves. And the last one, the fourth one, is called the argument, and uh, which is funny. I mean, it's a funny word, actually. But we mustn't forget also that the language that we're translating from is dead. It has never been used. It was used only to write down the Buddha's teachings. That's all. So when we get words that we use totally differently today. It means, of course, that we are using a totally different set of um, a terminology. So the practice can only make it come alive. So the argument that we see at the end of all this, first we have the meaning, we understand the meaning, we analyze it, and then because we have analyzed it, we interpret it correctly. And then the argument starts in the mind, says, well, if that is so, where is me? if I can actually see this. And then having that question, again, of course, the whole thing starts all over again because we see the pen arising. So actually what the Buddha says is that all four are depend arising, cause and effect, and the Four Noble Truths. So we're back to the Four Noble Truths and to depend arising. And that's why I'm saying, look at meaning, what's happening inside to you, externally, look at, uh, analyze it, interpret it, 
and then see it in the light of depend arising. Now, the Four Noble Truths I haven't touched upon yet, but I have said what they are briefly. I'll just say it. first one is that there's Dukkha, that existence is Dukkha. second one is that there's only one cause for that, and that's craving. third one is that there is liberation from that, cessation of it, which is Nibbana. And the fourth one is the Noble Eightfold Path. And we'll go through that one in detail because it is the Buddha's explanation on how to get to the end of Dukkha. And it is also dependent arising. It all belongs together. So this is wisdom. But there's another aspect to wisdom, and there are many aspects to wisdom. Buddha went on and on and on about it. There are threefold and fivefold and uh, all sorts of wisdom. But from a very practical standpoint, any experience that anyone ever has, if it is understood in the light of impermanence, or dukkha, or non-self, then it is an understood experience, and then it's wisdom. Anything, it doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's taking a step, is a step permanent or impermanent? How did it come about? What is its dependent arising? The mind said so, so the body followed through. How did the mind arise to take that step? All of that, every one of them, will either be impermanence or it will be dukkha or it will be dependently arisen or it will show that there's nobody there. It's only happening. It's taking a step. It's looking at a bird. It's anything at all. (coughs) Now, obviously, we can't do that all day long. But the more often you can do it, the easier you will see that there's nothing to think about, really, when one meditates. There's nothing to worry about. The future and the past are all one. It's all just one great big time span. And we're stuck in it unless we get out. And when you see that through insight, it's easier to become concentrated. The mind see that the smallest thing proclaims the Dhamma. All of it. All of us are actually just the living exposition of what the Buddha taught. And so we can do that and look at ourselves in that way. Now, the the person who gets liberated by wisdom, which is the one we're looking at here, realizes depend arising and he realizes dukkha and he realizes the um, the four noble truths and therefore can have that wisdom which is insight and which changes the mind this is something I'd like to mention because it is so much misunderstood and so often misunderstood particularly by people who know something about Buddhism (laughs) which may not be the case here. But by those who know something about Buddhism, it's totally misunderstood usually. Nibbana, the cessation of dukkha, is a cessation of mind and body. And as a cessation of the um, 
the aggregates and all that because this is mentioned by the Buddha but that's not what it is actually Nibbana is change of mind and if you can remember that you will have maybe a handle on it it's a change of mind from the ground up all that that we think about ourselves is all wrong every bit of it the whole thing is wrong and if we can change our mind and see it totally differently we can be liberated from that falsity of our thinking and I think that might make that so mysterious far away Nibbana a little more accessible it's a change of mind but it's so so impactful the change of mind that's a feeling of it also follows so it's not only known it's also felt and all the other explanations with it's, a, it's an annihilation, it's the end of this, it's the end of that, are all elaborate statements which very often um, have a misconception in them. That is something that we are particularly good at as human beings, misconceptions. Because we, as I explained to you at another time, that we always put something into all that stuff instead of just seeing it clearly and plainly. The, the simplicity of mind is a great help in this and not the convoluted mind. The simpler, the better. Now, this is the person who does this with wisdom. And then, of course, we have another person and that's a person that gets liberated in both ways. And uh, that's a whole, <laughs> a whole other chapter. And I don't really want to start that now because, of course, it's a whole other chapter I want to explain. So, um, another thing maybe I should like to say about wisdom. The Buddha has many expressions for wisdom. And they are also something that help us maybe to make it a little more accessible, what it really is. It's, um, he calls it a power. But when one has wisdom of absolute truth, all this relativity can't touch one. So there's an inner power. It's not power over others. It's an inner power. It's, a, it's like a tower, a tower of strength. It's a light and splendor. There's a splendor in the mind. The mind feels splendid. It cannot sag. It doesn't lose its buoyancy. It doesn't become depressed. It doesn't whine and complain. It doesn't blame anybody else. It has that inner splendor and buoyancy where there is, it's, it's not a, a physical light in the mind, obviously, but it feels light and it has light in it. All that are expressions of wisdom. The, the mind which has very little wisdom is a mind which is constricted. And that constriction means it's only concerned with me. That's all. Just me and nobody else. And, of course, you know, politeness and saying hello to people, but still, it's only me. That's a constriction. Then, when the mind gains wisdom through this investigation um, and then finding truth, when it gains wisdom through that, it has an opening. And so, in other words, it's as if the la a lamp has gone on. A lamp has been lit, and um, the, mi the mind becomes a gem 
a jewel. A jewel that has many facets and it has um, that splendor and that uh, value of a jewel. And because it is like a jewel, that person feels rich. You know, most people think being rich means having money in the bank. Well, that's what we think, isn't it? But I don't know whether people who have money in the bank really feel rich. I don't know. I don't have it, so I don't know what it feels like. It's, uh, it's, I don't know if one feels rich with a lot of money in the bank. But a person who has a lot of wisdom has this jewel-like splendor in the mind, and that's a feeling of being very rich. Very, um, there's a feeling of having gained the, the greatest good. And that's another word that's been used for wisdom, the greatest good. The word wisdom always means insight. It's a panya in Pali, and, uh, in, uh, which means uh, wisdom, but it's uh, equivalent to vipassana, which means insight. And maybe I should say at this point again that vipassana is not a method. <laughs> vipassana is insight. And uh, most methods of meditation if one is directed properly, will eventually bring insight, at least some. If one has no direction, of course, it may be more difficult, but uh, there are very few methods of meditation that don't bring insight. So we use the word here, the word panya is used as wisdom, but we we usually say wisdom insight in English, just to put the two together so that we know what we're talking about. So this is... um, another explanation of wisdom. And just to sum this up once more, the jhanas are here explained also as levels of existence, levels of consciousness, but also levels of existence. And of course, if one sits in meditation in one of the jhanas, it isn't the same as sitting in the marketplace and buying uh, carrots. I mean, it's a totally different level of consciousness. And so one knows very well that there are different levels of existence. So that's one thing that's being explained. And the other thing that's being explained here is that a person can know that all this is still not satisfactory. All of it is passing away, arising and ceasing. And that's why I said to you, after the jhanas, the first step is always that too is impermanent. Don't forget. And don't become mechanical about it. Look at it. And so a person understands these jhanas, understands these levels of consciousness, understands them very well from having studied and investigated, may not be able, may certainly not be able to do the immaterial ones, but the, by knowing that all this, even the highest uh, feeling in the mind, in the highest jhanas, is impermanent and conditioned. Clinging stops. Now, that is another thing that has to be known about the jhanas, that they are conditioned. Conditioned by what? Conditioned by concentration. What is concentration conditioned by? Conditioned by mind. What is mind conditioned by? Mind and body are conditioned from rebirth consciousness. So nothing out of the samsara round yet. It's usually called just the round, but right in it. So knowing that all the jhanas are conditioned, 
then one sees everything is conditioned within this round and a person can become liberated by letting go of all clinging to self. Now, not clinging to self does not mean being um, disgusted with self and having suicidal ideas. It means recognizing the fact that there has been a mistake in thought and that this mistake in thought has brought about a mistake in feeling because thought's also a sense contact. And because of this mistake, that all the difficulties have, that one has ever had is having now and is going to have are arising. And with that difficulty, one sees that one doesn't want to continue that, so one wants to cling no longer to this mistaken thought. Now that alone is only a beginning. It's not enough. One has to see it quite clearly that there isn't anybody there. There's only a reacting consciousness. And this reacting consciousness gets us into trouble very often. So this pathway, while possible, is extremely difficult. Because again and again, the mind will say, yeah, but I'm reacting. Who's this reacting? I'm doing this. It's a very difficult way of doing it. And logically, it can't be done. There's no way to do it logically. It has to be seen with insight that everything arises because it has a condition, including the jhanas. So this person gets liberated in that way. And then we have another chapter about the highest liberation, which is for the people who can do the jhanas. And although it will repeat things, it is still worthwhile to uh, go through that. And I don't want to do that now so because it's too much all in one evening. Now is the time to ask some questions, if you like. It seems after this, already three weeks almost, that things are unsatisfactory. There is no question. And the meditation gives an insight which it seems to me, it seems simply. <laughs> Not just the way it is, language doesn't matter. <laughs> that it would be indeed comfortable, preferable to. Yes. So, what's the question? The question is how, huh? <laughs> it just seems like it just should happen. You know, I can see it all. Mm. Well, you see, that's the first step. You have to see it all. Um, there are millions and millions and millions of people who can't see it at all. But when you can see it all, you've taken a big step. You have understood it. And when you've understood it, then comes the next step of getting concentrated in the meditation <coughs> to the point where you can actually, because of meditation, let go of the me, because that's the only way we can do jhanas. I mean, that's the only way one can meditate, to let go of me, right? And as you do that, 
the mind becomes stronger and stronger. It gains strength. It's like getting muscles. The meditation brings muscles to the mind. And as it gets that, as it gets that strength, it is able to change to the point where one has changed one's mind completely. So you've done the first step. Be happy. <laughs> okay, what else have we got? Yes. Um, non-returners, what realm would they, would they go to? Well, it is said that the, it depends. The, the non-returner may be a person that has uh, got to that state without even the jhanas. It depends entirely what the concentration is like. When the concentration is strong and when there is a, for a non-returner, when the meditation has come to the jhanas, he goes to that higher space. That's what they usually do, but it's not guaranteed. To the four highest uh, realms, where they have a long, long time to sit around. They have to, because they're not coming back. <laughs> or they're going to stick around there for a long, so long that uh, eventually, I think I have no idea. I mean, I have no personal <laughs> contact with them. <laughs> but I presume that they'll get tired of sticking around there and do something about it. <laughs> because these are the realms of longevity. It actually says exactly how many eons they live in the commentaries. 84 eons and 6,400 eons. And because I don't know what an eon is, I didn't think I was going to get into that. Yeah, commentaries and sometimes the Buddha. And, yeah. and since I can't tell you how long an eon is, I thought I'd skip that one. <laughs> and the Buddha does not advise it. He says, get enlightened here now. Yes. In terms of further study, um, you said yesterday that quite often the interpretation is also need interpreting. And the commentaries need interpreting. Yeah. So would how useful would it be to, go, like, to actually get the text that you're reading from? Or, or, like? I advise against this one. <laughs> <laughs> would you be able to give some guidelines as to which would be useful? Yes. I, I have a catalogue with me and I'll put it on the table and you can actually see in it, on the back page, I'll, I'll mention it, which ones are the Buddha's discourses. And uh, most of them are, with, are okay. This one is particularly difficult explained. I mean, the explanations are there, but they're particularly difficult. But most of them are much easier. Because also this is one of the most difficult suttas, discourses, and one of the most far-reaching ones. So that's why the explanation is also difficult. Everything in this sutta, and everything in the explanation, and everything in the commentary that explains the sutta, all is impersonal. The whole thing is totally impersonally explained and because of that difficult. And I don't know if you notice that, but I come back from that impersonal explanation back to the personal so that you can relate to it better. You know? So yes, as you can find out. I, I, I will mention it. We'll put that on the table next week and you can make notes. And so. What else? Yes? You identified that the Buddha went through all eight steps. 
I will get to that tomorrow. Uh, as far as the concentration is concerned. But what he did do, I can answer in one very simple sentence, uh, insight. You see, these eight steps do not give you the insight for liberation, yet if you only do them, if you do not use that, what I have been telling you to do, at the end, what did I learn from this? He was taught by teachers, by two teachers, who only taught these as serenity and tranquility steps. So, but what, what else he did, that comes tomorrow also. Okay? Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that there's a beautiful jewel in your heart. All its facets are sparkling, a diamond of the greatest value. The sun and the moon and the stars are pictured in it. giving off a beautiful reflection. This jewel contains love, sparkling and pure, impersonal, containing all your heart qualities. Splendid to behold. Let the sparkle and the splendor fill you from head to toe, knowing that your heart contains 
this beauty of love. Now let this sparkle and splendor of love from your heart reach out to the person nearest you and filling him or her from head to toe with this jewel that contains only love. And now let that beautiful reflection from the jewel in your heart reach out to everyone here. Filling everyone with the beauty of love. Think of your near and dear ones. Let them see and feel that many-faceted jewel reflecting the beauty of love.
And now think of your friends. Let them all share in that wonderful splendor that the jewel of love gives out and reflects. Let them be part of it. Now think of anyone in particular whom you would like to give the gift of the beautiful jewel of love from your heart. Let this person see and feel what that is like. Now think of anyone whom you find difficult to love. The jewel that reflects all the beauty in its own facets will shine on anyone. So let it shine to that person too. Now imagine that this jewel is not just in your heart, but that you are this jewel, and that this splendor is reflecting from you, and that you can let it grow and be larger and larger so that it can bring love to as many hearts as possible. Imagine that this jewel, which you are, is growing, getting bigger and bigger, containing love, reflecting it outward into the hearts of people near and far.
Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the splendor of love pervading you, enveloping you, being you, nothing else except that, a jewel from head to toe containing only love. May the jewel of love grow and expand through all the realms of existence. 